I'm happy to introduce our guest speaker tonight. There's just so many things I could say about our guest speaker, but I think the most important thing right now is that he's wearing a new robe that he received yesterday at our Dukai ceremony, and he has received a new name, Koji, which means broad compassion. And I was the one who picked out that name based on what I know about Tony Koji, and that is that the word broad or the character for broad also means to spread. And I think that what Tony, as I've known him, is a person who wishes to spread goodwill and encouragement, and particularly his field of encouragement is with ex-offenders, people who have, and current offenders who are still incarcerated, and ex-offenders who are trying to renegotiate the world in a more positive way. And he works on two projects, really almost full-time in those efforts. And that was a big motivation for me to come up with that name, which seemed so much to fit. It was a name that just came easily to mind. The other thing to know about Tony is he's quite an adventurer, and I received wonderful pictures this summer from the top of, or near the top of Half Dome, as he ascended the backside of Half Dome, and then also in the High Sierra, and I've received pictures from out in the ocean in a kayak, and I've received pictures from the Trinity Alps and various places. So he's someone who likes to, loves to get out in nature and explore and breathe the good air. And his next adventure coming up soon is a trip to Japan. His mother is Japanese, and he'll be visiting Japan for the first time. So I know he's excited about that, and I am for him as well. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to Tony Koji. Thank you for that introduction, Jim. Grateful just to be sharing space in here. And hello, everybody on the Zoom world. So yeah, I'd also like to acknowledge Indigenous Peoples Day, Miwok, Maidu, and Nisenan peoples. And also to acknowledge my own ancestral lineage of the Ainu people. My family hails from Hokkaido, and my family's from Baku, which is the Ainu village up north. So just to open up space for that. Yeah, my wife reminded me today, it's the 10th, and also just put this out there too, is 
uh, I have uh, eight years clean off heroin today, which is, uh, um, and everything that follows that as well. Uh, but I say that because you never know in the circles that you're that you're in uh, who else has uh, that in the story or the struggle. Uh, so just to acknowledge that um, as well. Um, so yeah, my name is Tony. Um, it's nice to be wearing this and not uh, to be stitching it anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but I will say during, uh, and I was moving from Humboldt to Long Beach about when I got to my guardians and and so it, it was just, it was a little struggle, you know, having to put it down and then try to do some really hard parts over Zoom, which didn't turn out very well. So had to wait to come back to Humboldt. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I feel the weight of holding this, um, around my neck. And it's really, um, yesterday was very special. Uh, I'm glad we got to share that together. Um, and thank you everyone who did come. Um, so. Getting to the path. Uh, as Jim mentioned, my mom is uh, Japanese. My mom's from Japan. Um, and she came here uh, in 1972, uh, first to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but Georgia was not kind uh, to the one lone Japanese family on the block. And so they soon moved to Okinawa um, and then came back. Uh, to California uh, in the mid-70s where my mom started high school. Um, and, and my father is a character you would read in a Ken Casey novel. Yeah, he's like your, your prototype American cowboy, um, probably hung out Dean Moriarty kind of, <laughs> you know, person. Um, and, and so... Yeah, I I was um, had these kind of polar opposites, but really complemented each other. Um, and it, it was yeah, very very um, very strange to have um, such opposite parents. Um, and so yeah, that's a little backstory with them. Um, I was born in Monterey. Um, grew up in Seaside, and my mother cleaned houses in Pacific Grove. Uh, so I got to play with all the wealthy kids' toys that I did not have. Uh, so it worked out for both of us. Um, and so, but I remember, I remember very early spending, like eating lunch at uh, Lover's Point um, with my mom and going to houses and playing with toys while she cleaned, but we would always, you know, the ocean was just, I don't know, probably my first, I would say my first memory, just this open vastness, uh, this limitlessness. Um, and, um, and yeah, that's where my Japanese side lived, my cousins, um, I have an older brother who's about seven years older than me. Um, and and yeah, my mom and my father had a very tumultuous relationship. Um, and we're always kind of back and forth, back and forth. Um, 
my dad also struggles with addiction and past incarceration, uh, dual diagnosed. Uh, so he's got a lot of different mental afflictions. Um, and for me, I think like the very first inquiry I had was like this um, identity crisis from a very early age. Um, and I just had this like this like this kind of missing puzzle piece for me um on like the you know a lot of us go through of like like who is this vessel that's like operating never feeling comfortable um and i think that really hit home when we moved to sacramento uh, my dad grew up in Rio Linda, um, who his side is from, that side Swedish. They came and became farmers in Minnesota, and then they came to California where my dad was born. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, I, my father's side is like blue hair, blonde eyed, and like I look very not, I don't look much like them. My brother is more related with my father's side. But I look like deadpan like my mother, um, you know, very round face. And, and, you know, and so moving to Sacramento, we were around his family, like my aunts and my cousins on my father's side and moved away from my, um, my essentially my Japanese side who I really identified with. This is, you know, my grandma I was really close with. She would babysit me. Um, and, and it was like, even being five years old is just really tough knowing that I was, I don't know, I was just away from it. I didn't know why, but it was just really, really difficult for me to adjust. Um, and, and yeah, it was just, I don't know. It was, um, it was like a, half of me stayed there and didn't come with us on the move. Uh, at least that's what it felt like. Um, and yeah, during this time, my parents were kind of sticking it out. Um, you know, my mom at some point ended up getting a job with Safeway, which she's worked for, still working for. Um, uh, and she was able to carry that job over. Um, and so she started working nights, and I never saw my mom. Uh, my mom would work like 3 p.m. to like 1 a.m. shifts. Uh, most of my childhood, um, so I never really saw her, and my and um, my dad and I didn't get along. He was um, at this time like a dry, you know, what they call like a dry drunk, someone who like quits everything but doesn't work on themselves. So they're just uh, not a terrible person, uh, a very tortured, hurting person, right? Um, and so very at odds like this, like very, mm, just just didn't get along um, at all. Um, and I miss my mom. I didn't like ever see her. I saw her in passing. It was, it was also like something that was really tough on me. Um, and, but, but what I lived for was my mom and I, during the summers and winters, would go back to Monterey and stay with my grandma, my uncles, my cousins. Uh, for about a month at a time, um, and 
those are like memories that I really cherished, uh, and I still do. I, I, you know, um, I was an awkward kid. <laughs> I was very awkward, uh, and and I was just I was just a weird I was just a weird kid. You know, I was just weird, and uh, and I think you know I had some friends, but it was yeah you know it comes with awkwardness. Uh, but I had also had friends who were um, also Japanese American, and I saw how closely connected they were with their culture. And it, and again, I just like I just knew I would like fantasize. I had these friends um, who I grew up with. There's um, who we would go um, to holiday parties with and Japanese uh, events um, and their father was Japanese and I always like fantasized that like oh this is my dad and you know from very early ages um, you know just I was always at their house and I was always like oh it's so cool what they were doing and you know once we moved from Monterey that side my mom was very um, she, you know she came here I mean her first experience was Atlanta um, where the bus drivers would like call her chink, jab, uh, you know, kids threw rocks at her and my uncles. Um, and so, you know, it was very tumultuous. And so I think that she kind of became, tried to hide that side when we came over here, very Americanized, even if subconsciously tried to kind of, um, you know, did not flourish as I would have hoped or liked. And I didn't know that then. Now I'm, you know, going through this as I get older. Um, but there was that missing piece for me, at least, you know. Again, like my fa my family up here in Sacramento, they're all blown or blonde hair, blue-eyed. Uh, one, and I'm going to jump real quick, so much that my cousin had a graduation at Sonoma State, and my now wife, uh, we were at uh, lunch, at this restaurant with my family and my wife's uh, half German. She's blonde hair, blue eyed. <laughs> and the waitress comes up she's, and she goes to my wife. She goes, wow, your family's so nice. And I was like, that's my family. <laughs> I was like, that's my family. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's just like, as a kid, you know, it's not seeing who you resemble is, is I don't know, just kind of very weight on me. And, and it made me have these existential crises um, like, you know, just not fitting in and, and, and again too, right? Like my mom worked nights, so not even seeing her at all, uh, was a little rough. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just remember those, I don't know, just really, really, um, being very lonely. That's what it felt like being very lonely. Um, and then I'll kind of skip over to, so, in between the times in Sacramento, um, mom still worked nights, and my dad and I didn't get along. Um, and when I and he was still trying to get his life together, he ended up going back to school for like like neither of my parents graduated high school. Um, my dad ended up going back to um, like electrician school, um, but he was still very mean. <laughs> So very just off-centered, you know, uh, and 
And when I was in middle school, he was misdiagnosed with having Lou Gehrig's disease. And so he had this mental snap. Uh, and he had this um, schizophrenic break, which had always kind of been with him. We just didn't know because he was never, you know, either diagnosed or he never went, um, you know, he, he just didn't believe in kind of talking mental, you know, capacities with people. He was a very, um, I don't know, stubborn person. Uh, and so he had, uh, they misdiagnosed him with Lou Gehrig's disease, essentially telling him he's going to, um, die a very slow, you know, painful death. And he kind of snapped. Um, and he, what you would say in 2022 would be kidnapped me back then. Mm, I, I should not have been with him. We were living in hotel rooms. He thought that, uh, like, the place we were living was very dirty. The water was tainted. He felt like the government was after him. He thought, like, everything was poisonous. So I remember waking up one night, and he rushed into my room. He had this a duffel bag. He was stuffing clothes. He says, we got to get out of here. And um, I was, like, 12 at the time. Um, and my mom was taking care of my grandpa, who was dying of uh kidney cancer down in Monterey. So it was just us. And um, yeah, and so my whole middle school was, or, you know, a year at least or so, maybe a little bit more. Uh, we were living in hotel rooms uh, around Sacramento, just kind of jumping hotel room to hotel room. Um, and and I remember I we were at the Doubletree, I feel like I think we were at the Double Tree across the from the Art and Fair Mall, and I had ran out of paper for homework, and and so you know in hotel rooms you get these little like pads, like little notepads that you that are stamped with the hotel um, logo, and so I turned my homework in with these Double Tree hotel note cards, and my my science teacher called my name and in front of the whole class said, you know, what is this? And I was like, uh, you know, it's my homework, did not wanting to go into detail. And he said, you can't turn this in. I'm not going to accept this. And so he made me come to the front of the class and um, very you know, traumatically embarrassing. And, was, and, you know, I had like, I'm living at the Doubletree. Um, that's all I had. And he said, well, I'm not going to accept this. Uh, and it was like, really this moment um and there was a three other moments at this time in this time period between 12 and 13 that changed the trajectory a little bit of my life which would probably have headed that way anyways um but this older uh, you know this teacher who 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 i should be able to come to if i was living in a hotel room and say uh, hey, I have a situation going on, and he did not, right? And so it was, it was this adult authoritarian figure who was ridiculing me for living in hotel rooms, and there was a disconnect just that snapped. Um, and so after middle school, the summer between middle school and uh, high school, I was 13, and my mom uh, found out. Uh, I mean, 
like the extent of my father's ailments. Uh, and so he, um, he just left. He just kind of just disappeared. And my mom picked me up. I don't remember where I was at. Uh, a lot of this I kind of like blocked out. Um, and so my mom picked me up and said, okay, you're going to go down to your cousin's house. And my aunt, who lived down in Greenfield and spent the summer with them, she needed a reset. I needed a reset. My aunt and my cousins um, and my uncle, uh, very dysfunctional, but very family-oriented. So it was like a really awesome um, – I would always would go down there. It was my first train ride. I left the Sacramento train station. Um and I'll get into trains. I'm a big train buff. I used to hop trains. I'm, I love trains. It's like um, big on trains. So this is like a big deal to ride this train by myself. Um, you know, I've taken the bus and everything, but never a train uh, like that. And we get pulled over in Richmond. We stopped at Richmond, and there's a SWAT team that's just out on the platform. And I was listening to a Bob Dylan. Uh, album on my Walkman and I was reading Junkie by David, uh, William Burroughs. I remember it so distinctly and I look out the window there are like four SWAT team members with two canines and I think to myself wow this really sucks for whoever they're here for and right as I thought that I get a tap on my shoulder and it's one of the SWAT team members and he says are you Tony and I go yes and he goes get your uh, explicitive and then come with me uh, and so they hauled me out of the train and um, and they asked me what was in my bag and um, by this time the dogs were on my bag and they asked me I was like very terrified it was a very terrifying experience and um, you know they're like, very towering figures and before I open up they say are you transporting kilos of cocaine and I said, no, I'm not transporting kilos of cocaine. Um, and he's like, well, the dogs are on your bag. And I said, well, I have an eighth of shake, and I got two joints in my bag, but I have swear I got no cocaine whatsoever. Um, and they ended up saying some other things to me. They, ripped, they made me rip open my bag and put everything on the platform. And by this time, the whole train car is looking at me, um, and like, it was just like this really circus debacle. And, uh, and then they started laughing, like, like hands on the knees, they're laughing. There's, there's no cocaine in my bag. Um, and then, you know, and I kind of like jab at them. I said, you know, quit laughing. And they told me to, you know, essentially just shut up and that, uh, you know, I'll, they asked me, do I want to go to Richmond jail? Um, or do I want to get back on the train? And I said, well, obviously, I'd rather get on the train than go to Richmond jail. Uh, and they said some other stuff. Um, they made me take the eighth of shake, the joints, stomp it out for like, seemed like 10 minutes. Um, and they gave me my bag. And then they told me, uh, and they, they wrote my information down, and, and which I had to deal with later, but I got back on the train. Uh, and that was like the second thing that like I got treated like an, this adult. I don't know. It was just super traumatic. Uh, these SWAT members, uh, for whatever reason, thinking I was transporting kilos of cocaine, treated me like an adult. They cussed me out. They're pushing me around. Um, super 
yeah, just super, super traumatic. That was the second time that I had this, you know, these authority. You should be able to come to these types of public servants is what they are uh, with a problem and not be afraid. Uh, and then, I mean, I'm going to be 32. I don't look 32. When I was 13, I looked like I was eight. You know, I looked very, I mean, I was, I probably saw my baby fat. I had puberty late. I was not at all a, a towering adult figure. Um, and so, yeah, I got back on the train and got to Jack London Square. And uh, the rest of that, the, all that before is very traumatic. But the best part of this story, is only the good part, is these two people came up to me and this couple, really young, this woman was wearing overalls, blonde hair, and there was this guy who was kind of like wearing these uh, Birkenstock sandals, no sh no socks, and he was kind of dirty, and <laughs> I just remember distinctly, they said, man, that was really heavy, kid, what happened? Um, and I told them, and they said, wow, we're transporting 10 pounds of weed to Mississippi. <laughs> we thought they were here for us. <laughs> and, and I like... I was like, so I, I didn't know how to react. I was so flushed. And I was like, wow, I, gl I guess I'm glad they didn't get you guys. But that was <laughs> very like traumatic for me. And, uh, and in that whole situation, I lost my transfer ticket from the, from the train to the bus. So that was stuck. I had no money. I had no phone. You know, um, they bought me a transferring ticket. And then they gave me some of the some volume and uh, a joint, and they said, hey, "Thank you so, <laughs> thank you so much. Here you go." Uh, and the first time I took volume, and um, and yeah, it was just very, uh, yeah. So um, yeah, just the those those two things. And then once once I got down to Greenfield, it was kind of like that's where I that's where I first did. Um, I used the first heavy drug. I don't really want to get into too much details, but all in this trajectory, right? My my father had a schizophrenic break, disappeared, living in hotel rooms. Um, the teacher, the SWAT team getting arrested, and then you know, and and once after all that, I just I just like drowned myself. Um, just instantly when I got off that bus ride um, to calm my nerves and it just didn't stop from 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 there and I and then I actually got arrested every year after that um, like like more so like going you know to the facility here um, and um, yeah I was on probation with the courts up until two years ago so from from 13 to 29, I've been on some kind of supervision for whatever reason, um, you know, and it, and it kind of started in that incident. I'm not saying I'm not blaming it, but, but you know, these cause and effects, you know, that, that kind of happen. And I also had a lot of inter, intergenerational trauma that I just kind of like suppressed. The Laya Vijnana in me is deep rooted with uh, just a lot of heavy, heaviness. Um, and so, and I was not watering those with with compassionate, <laughs> compassionate, you know, not watering the seeds with compassion uh, at all. Um, and I was just very bitter after that. Um, and so, yeah, I got, you know, 
I, 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 my, those 13, 14, 15, 16, the 17 years were really rough. Um, my mom and I got evicted out of a couple places. By this time, my dad had split. He was back using. He was past, He was back dealing drugs. Um, and I was doing the same. Uh, I followed suit. Uh, I ended up getting kicked out of high school. Uh, I worked as a construction, as a contract assistant for a while. Uh, and this is like... I, this is the identity that I took and was like, wow, I can, I can uh, name this. I can define this. I can, you know, even if it's negative, there's something here that's so familiar that if anyone said anything, I could say whatever term, junkie, addict, boozehead, whatever that, I mean, they all mean the same. And I could, um, fill that void of like, who am I, this identity crisis, um, you know, am I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm this I'm algorithm of so many different things, uh, but that one thing I can like, I can write in one sentence clearly what that is, and, I, and, and, and it made me feel like, all right, you know, um, this is gonna, yeah, it was this false enlightenment, you know, like I was, you know, just completed me. Um, so I got kicked out of high school. Um, and I was working as like a contractor's assistant for a while. Uh, oh, very important part of the 13 year old me part of this. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, I also found this book on Buddhism. Why we're all here. Uh, on my mom's shelf. Uh, and before I went to Greenfield, it was in between this time. And, um, and that book really resonated with me. It just had, um, it was an old, uh, I can't, it was just an old book, part of a collection that my mom had. And I just remember holding it and being like, wow, this is, I can relate to this. I don't know what it's saying. I don't know the noble truths are at all. I don't know this path, but but for some reason, I felt connected to my mom. I felt connected to my grandma, and I felt connected to like my uncles and my cousins, and and it just it just made me feel really connected and intertwined um, with who I was or who I thought I was I was supposed to be, um, and so yeah, that was a also a very important part that I almost missed out. So, so all this time you know, I had these, I, and and after that I, w I read up on a lot of Buddhism. I'm in practice because I was um, living such a crazy lifestyle, but I was reading on it. I was like, wow, this is you know something I feel connected with. Um, and so all you know, my teenage years, I you know read a lot on Buddhism and and kind of gather all I could on it. Um, never, obviously, never sitting. Why you need that? You can read it in the book, you know. Um, and and honestly, I was like, yeah, it, it, sitting terrified me. <laughs> terrified me. <laughs> it just was like that's not gonna happen. Uh, not ready to face the mirror, you know. Um, but it, but it was in the back burner, and I think that was really important. Um, and it kind of you know saved my life, but. I mean, it planted a seed, that's for sure. Um, and so, um, 
my mom convinced me to go get my high school diploma or my GED. So I ended up going to continuation school. And um, I'm glad she did. Um, and so when I so I, I graduated at 17, I, or I got my GED at 17. Uh, and someone I knew said, hey, you get free money if you go to college. I said, oh, I was, sign me up. So I signed up at American River College. I got that sweet $1,200 check, and uh, and I and I didn't go back to school after that, uh, not for that first semester at least. But I did meet a professor. I took one class that first semester, um, and it was um, um, dark room, so I could use the dark room because I was. I took, I continue to to this day, but I take a lot of black and white photos. That's like a big passion of mine is is, is taking photography, black and white. Uh, and I ran into this professor just randomly um, in this art quad, and he asked me, he's like, oh, you know, like, what are you coming to school for? I said, oh, I'm coming here for poetry. He goes, oh, you're never going to make money being a poet. <laughs> Why would you do that? He goes, you should get into journalism. I go, huh, interesting. And it and it kind of just stuck with me. And the only journalist I like, I, I you know, my mom gifted me Hell's Angels by Hunter S. Thompson when I was younger. And I was, you know, and then I was hooked on Hunter S. Thompson, but it's not like you're um, <laughs> run-of-the-mill journalist at all. <laughs> you know, it's not typical. Uh, but that was my head. I was like, pfft. I could be Hunter S. Thompson, no problem, <laughs> for sure. Uh, and so the next semester, I signed up for a journalism class, and pff, it was that same professor who I saw in the art quad. Uh, and so I kind of found some kind of balance there. Um, I really like being a journalist. I really like going, being like being on the newspaper, contributing. Um, I didn't take any other class at all. I didn't take science, math, nothing. All I did was I was on the newspaper. Uh, I started doing some stuff freelance. Um, and then, um, but I was still I was still selling drugs. And, and, and so it was like, but it worked out because I was a journalist. You can make your own hours. And it was like, you know, I just kind of fit with how I was living at the time. Um, but that also, too, was like a, like a, I don't know, it's another seed planted for me, um, and it kind of stuck. But then I got arrested again, um, and I didn't turn 18 yet, so I missed that semester. And then I turned 18, and I had my... And by this time, my, my father is in Oklahoma for a few years. He has another family. Um, and so my stepbrother... Um, came to visit us, or visit me. I was living uh, on downtown at the time, uh, and my, my own, I had my own studio, and, um, and my younger brother came to visit us, or visit me, um, and, and he was with another friend of mine who had just got out of uh, incarceration, and, and while I was in school with the newspaper, they ended up, they ended up getting pulled over, my friend got arrested, my little brother got arrested, and then my older brother got called. He called me, 
and was like, where are you? I said, oh, I'm at school. He goes, yeah, I don't, believe, I, don't, I don't believe you're at school. I go, no, I'm at school right now. And he's like, well, you know, our younger brother's arrested, your friend's arrested, and the police have raided your, uh, your, your studio um, because my friend spent the night the night before and the cops took, the police took that as, oh, you stay here, so we're going to come into your place. Um, so they arrest them. But my younger brother, they gave him an ultimatum. They said, well, let him go if you turn yourself in. So I drove from ARC downtown, turned myself in. My, my younger brother went to hang out with our uncle up north. Um, and then I went back to Sacramento. Well, first time going back, to, I had just turned 18. So I went to Sacramento County Jail. Fought that case uh, and ended up getting a um, actually a suspended prison sentence for that. Uh, I had the same judge reoccurring since I had just turned 18, and um, they allowed me to have a suspended prison sentence and live in Oklahoma and go uh, do a program out there. Laws were changing at this time, um, and they had only gotten me anyways for just. Uh, paraphernalia, drug, illicit dealing and stuff like that. Uh, and so, yeah, I think they just didn't want to deal with me anymore. I had the same judge, tired of kind of seeing me. It's like, ah, oh, man, again? All right, go to Oklahoma. That's <laughs> punishment enough. Uh, and so, yeah, lucky for me, the program that, I, that the judge has sent me to um, – Somehow it was no longer in existence. I don't know how those wires crossed. <laughs> so I was supposed to be like, like somewhat incarcerated. Um, and turns out the, the only program was in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Um, and the small, like the police station is the bar, is the mail place, is, you know, um, is the program there. And it was not. It was not, um, I, I couldn't live there or anything. So, ended up living in Oklahoma doing this program. Um, and I loved it. I actually loved Oklahoma. It was, it was, um, it was, it was a fun time. But also, now that I was kind of, you know, a little older, my dad was still using, my dad was still drinking, my dad was still doing X, Y, and Z, whatever. So now we were kind of like, using buddies, which was very dangerous. Um, and that was a very tumultuous relationship, too, him and his um, his wife, um, who, you know, I love them both very much. I'm not, you know, I love them both very much. Uh, but a lot of, uh, during that time, what me and my younger brother were going through um, definitely did not have stable uh, structures. I guess I've never known stable structures. <laughs> I think that's safe to say. Um, and so, yeah, I did Oklahoma uh, uh, for a year. Uh, met a lot of really good friends that I have today. Uh, but it really, you know, I, would, I stopped using heroin. Uh, but I was now doing other stuff with my dad, um, which was not healthy at all. Uh, and so I ended up graduating this program, um, got a certificate and everything, and um, 
and the judge unsuspended my prison sentence. Uh, and I went on a nine-month road trip in a Dodge Ram van across country with my friend. Uh, changed my name to Dylan Guthrie Waits Dirt is six. Um, and in Oklahoma, I was hopping trains uh, and learning. I don't want to spend too much time, but the train part, I mean, it was very fun. I was hopping trains from Oklahoma City to Tulsa. That was like the first ride. And after that, I was, you know, kind of going further or taking it elsewhere. Uh, and during, like, my late teens to early 20s, I would take the train out to Oklahoma, um, hitchhike, to, you know, hop a train out of Phoenix to Fort Worth and then get off there. And, um or take it up to Colorado, where my brother ended up moving to for a little bit. So there's a whole, um, yeah, I was like on the road for quite a while. Um, and But it started with, with these little train rides with my friend uh, Dylan. And we bought a Dodge Ram van and went on a, like a cross-country trek, um, which also a really profound effect on me. Um, and then we lived in San Francisco for a little bit after that. And we made our way back to Arkansas for a music festival. Um, and then I ended up going back to Oklahoma and was really missing the ocean. It was like, could not be away from water that, that deep. Uh, so I ended up moving, uh, well, hopped on a train, uh, made my way to New Mexico. And then from New Mexico, I made my way to L.A., I lived in L.A. for a little bit, and then my mom had to get surgery, and there was no one else to kind of, like, really take care of her, so I ended up moving back to Sacramento, which was a terrible idea, uh, and I got back into the same things. And then, um, kind of fast forward through this part, got arrested a lot, Sacramento County Jail, Marysville Jail, Yuba, um, Butte County, uh, just a lot of... There's a lot of very uh, poor decisions on my end, and a lot of, um, yeah, just a lot of a lot of hurt, um, and still like, like trying to find my spot uh, and trying to like suppress all the trauma that I was like running away from. Um, but all through that time, when I came back to Sacramento, in between getting arrested, and uh, I ended up was like, wow, school was a really big part of it. And I really like journalism, so there's something there. Uh, and and so I went back to school in between semesters and doing freelance stuff, but I always get arrested and I'd miss however long of class uh, through the year. And then, um, and then eventually, um, and eventually I ended up getting arrested and I was facing a 10-year case. Uh, I got sent to Rio Consumers Correctional Facility. Um, and I, yeah, and I was, the, the first thing they said, this lawyer, public defender I had, was like, they want to give you 10 years. And I was like, oh, that's not happening. Uh, all right. And so then I got sent to Rio Consumers Correctional Facility. I was fighting this case. Uh, I ended up... Um, Meeting this uh, this indigenous uh, older indigenous uh, friend who kind of took me under his wing um, 
and he lived, he's from Oklahoma, and I had taken a photo of him at a powwow my first semester at ARC, and it was like this, my mom sent us the photos. So he looked really familiar, he was 10 years older than me, and he had um, done this powwow, um, and, I, and I was like, wow, we had talked a while, and he just said, yeah, I was, you know, in, you know, my mom was going to Mary Youngblood's spot up in Grass Valley for some women's retreat or something. Um, and we were talking about that. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know her. I, I used to do powwows at American River College. And I go, oh, that's weird. And I was like, I took photos of one before. And it turns out we had the same one. And, and like, you know, I don't know. It was just like one of those goosebump kind of feelings. And my mom, I had I called my mom, she ended up sending us the photos of me taking photos of him like, I don't know, eight, eight years later or earlier. Um, and so he kind of showed me the ropes um, at that place. But he would sit meditation and I would sit on the yard, meditate with him and we would sit. Um, like we had a pretty um, clear regiment of um, sitting like that. He liked it. And, and, and so I, that was like the first time for me wholeheartedly sitting um, with, some, with, with myself, but, but obviously with someone. Um, but my mom would go, I, I remember my mom, there's a Japanese Buddhist temple in Locke or Isleton. And my mom, when she came to visit me, went by the Buddhist temple to get like these books. They, they just had these, um, just these Buddhist books, um, these teachings, and it would be kanji on one side and it'd be English. And, and she tried to walk into the prison with it. And I remember her crying on the first visit. And, um, I, you know, I was like, what's wrong? And she said, well, I tried to bring these books in for you from the temple and they just said how stupid I was because you have to mail in things and you know my mom had never visited me in the county jail um and so this was her first time she visited me so she didn't know how to you know understandably how to you know how things worked uh but I guess they just made her feel very small and ridiculed her and, and it was like one another profound moment for me it was like wow I put her through this this is like my fault um you know, she didn't have to, like, even, one, she didn't have to visit me. Two, she didn't have to drive out of the way to this Buddhist temple, very thoughtful, you know, and, and try to bring me something. It was, you know, I, and, um, yeah, it's just really like, wow, I'm really, you know, putting this on another human being. And I never thought about it that way. Um, and so I ended up beating this case. I got, I spent most of that year at Real Consumedness, um, and I got out, and I had a five-year suspended prison sentence, it was my second suspended, and it was, you know, kind of that moment where I, off a of technicality, I didn't get sent to another facility, and I got, you know, I was very privileged, um, and I know that, that somehow I just, you know, it was just a weird technicality. So I can put it, um, and and so I got out. I got released to my mom's, um, and I remember thinking, like, man, you know, one sitting in there for that long with with 
my mentor in there was like amazing. It was just like I found this this thing, this activity that I could do, and um, but at the same time, I was very also very traumatized by some of the stuff that was going on at that time at the correctional facility. Um, this was when like realignment was happening, so people were doing prison time uh, in county facilities, and they extended the year. I don't know, so they before a certain time, you could not do over a year in a county facility. Now, you can, and there's a lot of weird details that come with that. You get no conjugal visits. You get you know there's a lot of nuances. So it really created this real weird prison politic craziness. Um, and my father was also incarcerated at this correctional facility too. When he, you know, he, uh, a couple times, he actually, he missed his high school graduation because he got sent here. So there's all these things that like, wow, you know, like now I'm sleeping on this bunk and being like, wow, I wonder if my dad slept here, you know, and also, um, at a point, you know, identity, right? Like, I don't really want to get too much into it, but in those facilities, you're based off race. That's all I could put it, right? So also, too, like my parent, like, would I be, I wouldn't be able to eat off soup that my dad had because we're not the same race, right? It considered. So, like, all these things were, like, you know, when I got out of there, it was like, wow, it was like, you know, really heavy. I beat this thing, but I'm still kind of like not sure where I'm at. But I remember leaving my mom's apartment and being like, all right, today's the day I'm going to check in to my PO and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I did none of those things. I got too, uh, too much fear and shame and guilt and, and all these things that kind of over, uh, kind of, wrangled me um, and maybe a couple days later I ended up overdosing again um, and I had overdosed a lot of times and I've had um, suicidal overdoses so I've, I've attempted suicide three times um, and, and somehow survived when I was younger uh, and so when I overdosed this time this was the last time I've ever overdosed um, my mom came home from lunch, from work, for some, whatever reason, she never, you know, for whatever reason, just happened to, and I was, you know, overdosed, uh, paramedics came, they pronounced me dead, went to the hospital, and when I woke up in the hospital, it was the first time that I woke up with another human being in the hospital, every other time I woke up in a hospital, I would rip all the wires off of me and I'd leave, you know, um, and I would just, you know, just leave. That's, and that's what happened the last time I got arrested. I overdosed. I got, and, and the beat cops downtown follow the ambulance to the hospital, but I was unconscious. So they left. And so when I, and they were going to come back, but when I woke up, I just, I left. And a week, exactly a week later, I was in a stolen vehicle. The cop recognized my face from the overdose a week prior. You know, so just, right, these crazy, just 
cause and effects. And so when I woke up in the hospital, my mom was crying. And I remember, and I didn't put it in these terms, but it was like, wow, this is like, this is interdependence, right? Like I'm affecting everybody. Like no matter what it is I'm doing, I'm affecting everybody's life. And they're affecting me. Uh, and I never saw it that way. I always said, wow, I'm, if I'm doing whatever to me, it has nothing to do with anybody else. It's not affecting you. Um, and that was my mentality. And, and so, um, I thought, you know, like I'm an individual, I'm an individual, nothing else is affecting other people. And at that moment, it just snapped. It was like, wow, someone put glasses on me and I needed, I was like farsighted my whole life. And now I could like see fine. Um, and the next day I ended up going Moving to Santa Rosa, I got into a 30-day treatment. Uh, I lived in a halfway house for a year after that, um, and and yeah, it was, it was that that, that kind of carried over with me. Just this, you know, interdependence. Like, wow, like everything is connected, uh, and still not knowing what interdependence meant. Although probably in my head, I was like, wow, I must have read this word somewhere, you know. Um, and yeah, I moved into this halfway house, um, and I remember uh, uh, other 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 people who were also on supervision and et cetera. They were going back to the junior college, and so I followed suit uh, after living there for a little bit. And um, my first semester that I was trying to get enrolled, um, I got denied financial aid. Uh, because of my uh, certain felony convictions. At the time, certain felonies barred you from getting financial aid. And so I was like, well, I'm giving up. And this woman came, and this this counselor directed me to this woman and said, hey, hey, you know, um, obviously she knew I was distressed and said, hey, you should go talk to this uh, this person and, and she might be able to help you. Uh, and so I talked to... Um, this woman who was starting this program, and um, she offered, she was starting a, a formerly incarcerated students program called Second Chance, and I was like the first or second person she had been in contact with, and she was like, oh, I'll pay for your classes, and I said, you don't even know me, and I got scared and I left. <laughs> And then I went back to that halfway house, and I told the fellows about it, and they said, well, you're crazy. I said, yeah, but you weren't in the situation. She doesn't know me. Uh, she, you know, like, what's what's she going to get out of it? Um, and the next day, I came to my senses. I went and talked to her, and, and yeah, she's like, this is just what I do. This is what we do. We're creating this cool program. Uh, and she paid for my classes for the first semester. Um, that program, I was like... 110 students now. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah, yep. It was like another seed that got planted, um, and yes, and so that was my first. And at the time too, I was still kind of like, not I don't know, still unsure. So even though she helped me pay, like I talked to her once in a while, but it's never really too affiliated. Uh, I remember my first class. I was in this English class, and um, this this like this young young kid who probably just transferred from high school to the junior college. He like looks over at me, 
and and I was really nervous in general. And uh, and he just says, "Why do you have a face tattoo?" <laughs> and I about lost it. And uh, and he didn't say it like maliciously. He was just curious, I guess. I don't know. But I was like, man, you're going to ask the wrong person that. I said, I wouldn't ever start a conversation with a stranger like that. And uh, and he said, oh, okay. And I said, yeah. And we ended up having a conversation. And I, ended up, I ended up tutoring him for English 1A and English 1B and helping him write his papers. Um but it all started with him asking about it. And that was also like, oh, do I belong here? I don't know, you know. And um, yeah, and, and so I ended up, I ended up uh, during this time, right now I was living in a halfway house. Um, I ended up doing some work in a juvenile facility in Santa Rosa. I ended up bringing meetings into Napa State Prison Hospital, um, which was some of like the really coolest experience I had um, and I was doing a lot of like institutional work um, and volunteering and like really I was working at a food bank and um, yeah I don't know I was just trying to be as service as I could because I still was like so I don't know I was like really oh, it was really hard for me to um, face myself uh, but the first thing I did when I got out of um, um, the treatment center is I found a sangha and I started sitting. That was the first thing I did, uh, and I've and I've been sitting home, like you know since. But I remember going to the sangha and sitting with this group, and they were really welcoming, and and I was really nervous. Um, I was probably a little too open, <laughs> and, you know, like uh, you know I don't know. But it was you know I had this uh, gentleman give me a whole collection. of Carlos Castaneda books, like the first time I met him, he just had this, and I don't know why he had them, his name was Ted, and um, he was just like, oh man, I got this bag of books, would you like them? I go, I go, sure, he goes, yeah, they're all of Carlos Castaneda's books, I was like, oh, awesome, cool, and, and, and you know, and it was like, wow, okay, I, you know, this is kind of where, um, I fit in, and it was awesome. I did, you know, I sat with them um, for a couple of years, um, and I did all the, you know, long sits. I did all the retreats and all that. Um, and then um, let's fast forward a little bit to moving to Sacramento. We moved back. My now wife. Um, we moved back to Sacramento, um, and the first. I think like this first man on the first day, the second day was Monday, and and I walked in here and I met Jim, um, and then yeah, and walking in here was like wow, this really feels like home. This feels you know, uh, the other group I was sitting with was not Zen. Uh, it was a it was a wonderful group of people, but when I when I when I walked through this door, it was like wow, this is. Um, uh, really put that puzzle piece that I was talking about earlier back that I was missing. Um, and I finished up, and the reason we moved back with my mom was rent went up and she needed some help, and I had to finish my degree at Sac City. Uh, so it just kind of like worked out really well. 
and I was still doing some work here, um, and, oh, I just lost my train of thought, um, hmm, okay, well, sat here, and then ended up, um, getting into humble, actually, it's almost there, my last day in Sacramento, it was after a study Thursday, me, you, Roland, and Larry um, were sitting around the table, and I was like, man, I have Gary Snyder's address, and I've been wanting to go for a long time, and I tried to go there when I was younger, and it didn't work out, um, and I remember, I don't know if it was you or Roland, who was just like, why don't you just go? I go, all right, I'll just do it. <laughs> and and I ended up taking the trek out to Nevada City, going through this crazy like dirt roads to his place, and uh, and and th there's a connection here with humble. That's why I'm telling the story. But also, it's like a very profound for me, meeting Gary Snyder. And I just showed up at his house. He opened up his door. He was wearing a buttoned-up shirt that was not buttoned. And um, it was just like, oh, it was just so confused. And I was like, hey, uh, I've just been really wanting, I don't know what I said, actually. I was like, I just really want to meet you. Uh, your kids are Japanese and white. I'm Japanese and white. Can we hit, can we talk? I sit, you know, Zazen, like, you know, whatever. And, and he was like, yeah, let me go uh, get some water out of my well and meet me in the shade. And we talked for like an hour. And, um, and he says, uh, we talked about a bunch of stuff, but he, uh, he found out I was moving to Humboldt, and he said, you need to look up this poet named Jerry Martin. He's a really good friend of mine. I go, all right, I'm going to do that. And um, and the next day, my, my wife and I we moved up to Humboldt. Uh, I transferred up to Humboldt State. Um, and <laughs> I remember the first day, I was like asking everyone in the bars and everything, and the Food, like, do you know Jerry Martin? And everyone's like, who the heck are you talking about? Um, and so my first week at Humboldt State, I ended up looking for formerly incarcerated student resources. Uh, didn't find any. Um, and I met some professors uh, who um, who encouraged me to, like, start a club. And I said, no, I'm just going to write a story about it because I got into the journalism program up there. And, uh, and I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to start a club. That's like not why I came to Humboldt. I came here to heal, and I came here to face my, you know, traumas and, and demons and whatever. And, um, and then I met another person who was writing, who was a source for my story. Because what I pictured was if I write about a problem, that's enough for a solution to, to be open in the air. Uh, and that was not the case. Because the second person I met also encouraged me to start something. I said, all right, I guess I'm going to start something. So my first, I don't know, week on campus, I, I started this club. And uh, I started meeting other people who were who had been formerly incarcerated and a lot longer than me and um, who were not ready to, or, you know, understandably didn't want to talk about incarceration or, or reveal themselves. And, um, and after a year of me presenting to the campus, the community, um, you know, uh, it was it was really it was um, yeah, it was just kind of me at the time. But I also fell in with the Arcade Zen group my first week, and so I was with them for for um, 
I mean, that was like a sanctuary of mine that when I was up there. Because I didn't know, you know, me and Audrey didn't know many people. Um, but they also encouraged me with what I was doing. Um, and after a year, I met somebody who helped me build the club up and the club kind of, uh, I was doing, I was working as a freelance journalist for the North Coast Journal. And I was doing a story in Pelican Bay State Prison about education. And I was going into Pelican Bay for all their workshops and all their classes. And I was writing all these stories about these programs because I had read this, I'd read this San Francisco Chronicle art, uh, article a few years after, or maybe just right after I was released from the correctional facility. And, um, and it was a really cool article about programming in San Quentin. Except the reporter started naming off all the crimes that the the guys were incarcerated for. So it like totally negated the fact that like, wow, there's all these cool programs going on. And yet now all that people are going to think about is what this person did without any context. And I remember thinking, wow, that's what people are going to think about me. Like no context. You know, they're going to see this and judge and whatever. Um, and um, and yeah, so like my main focus when I worked as a journalist was I wrote nothing but about incarceration and context. I wrote about people who were doing well, but I wrote about crimes. But I also wrote about like this person's journey to get there, and, and I never downplayed it or anything. But I wrote a, I gave a lot of context, and I put a lot of out there. And the comments are really, really funny. Um, they're very bad. <laughs> some really some some publications I worked for in Humboldt have like these Thunderdome areas where like people comment. And it's like this, I don't know, this Marxist up here writing about people in prison, blah 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 blah. And and you know, and it's funny because the only time I wrote an article that was this particular publication, I wrote an article about. Um, fire camp, you know, people fighting fires and how California couldn't survive if it wasn't people who were incarcerated fighting fires. Um, and I got a flood of firefighters say their best people they ever worked with were people in fire camp. And it was, it was pretty awesome. Um, yep. Oh, yes, of course. I have no time. I can go on. <laughs> but I, I, I realized, I, I thought I had an insight of why you have a face tattoo. Hmm. Um, because I have a feeling that having the face tattoo uh, led you to meet the people you needed to meet when you went to Humboldt. I mean, mm. because they they would kind of people who were ex-offenders would, would kind of be drawn, like they'd say, hmm, they would. I wonder this is if true. That, you know, if he's one of us. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if that that might be, you know, part of what led you to meet the right people. I would say so. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely sparked those conversations, and it definitely, yeah, and especially like, I mean, I got, you know, I mean, like my knuckle, some, you know, in correctional facilities, like, so you kind of know, like, what are chess pieces that were burned <laughs> and used as this tattoo ink, um, and so yeah, conversation starters, um, and I just, yeah, I had a conversation with a student who's in my program now. 
Okay, I'll wrap up really quick to that part. Uh, so um, the club that I started has now been a fully funded program called Project Rebound that I work for, that I operate. Um, and we worked as a club to get this program on our campus. Um, and it had been around for a long time at SF State. Um, and it expanded at the perfect timing, kind of a perfect storm for us. And so we ended up getting the program. We got the funding. I got hired. And at the same time I got hired, I got into a master's program. And I entered master's, my master's the first time I started working for this program. Uh, and since then, I've now got my master's. Uh, and and I, I, we, my program is about 20 students, a bunch that are at the community college. Uh, I've set up um, like a formerly incarcerated mentorship in the juvenile hall. Uh, and then I teach a creative writing class at the correctional facility in Humboldt. Um, and, you know, we, we, we do a lot of workshops in the prison and we're really community oriented. Um, and then about a year and a half ago or so, I became a board member for the Boundless Freedom Project which was started by a board member here, uh, Diane Wild, uh, which was formerly known as the Buddhist Prison Pathways Project, which has now evolved into not just facilitating different sanghas inside prison, but we also do reentry. And most of us are, for, actually the whole staff are ex-lifers who found Buddhism while in prison and are now the staff team. Uh, and they're all really good friends of mine. One's my neighbor, <clears throat> uh, one's my tattoo artist, uh, <laughs> and one is actually my student <laughs> in my program who I picked up from Pelican Bay after serving 29 years. Um, and we took him kayaking for the first time, which was pretty special. Uh, but yeah, and so, <clears throat> um, yeah, that's been really awesome to be part of that and to see, you know, this amazing program kind of where it is now. Um, and then I, I've um, also become, yeah, just, uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Tony, you need to mention your chapbook, which has your poems from your time, your chapbook, which has your poems from your time on the road. Yes. Uh, if people want to know more about your travels and your journey, I would highly recommend that book. So talk just a little bit about the title. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, so I have a chapbook out, and I also have a manu I have a full poetry book that just got accepted uh, for publication that'll be coming out. Um, but the chapbook is called Hiu Hakasha, uh, which means uh, or Hiu Hakasha, um, desolate travels of a junkie, and in Japanese Hiu Hakasha means um, like vagabond. Mm -hmm. The vagabond. Yeah. yeah, and so there's pictures of me while I was train hopping and on the road, and, and it's like a short little chat book. Um, chat book is just a, just not a full book. It's like 45 pages. It's like very small. It's like what you, um, it's like, I think they only create chat books because when you submit manuscripts, there are so many um like weird nuances that like that the chat book isn't considered a first book so other publications won't publish 
Yeah, I think that's the reason why. Yeah. Um, it's often so poets, when they're reading publicly, have something to sell from the from the microphone, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tony.